0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 16 of the Movement as Medicine podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Carr, joined by my amazing co host coming to me from California at about 5 40 in the morning, uh, Brendan Rerick. Good morning to you.
1: Good morning. We were supposed to start at 5, but I had a little late start today. He's a
0: sleepy boy today.
1: <laughs> I was. I was
0: a very sleepy man. It's all right. I took my dogs for a walk. I you gave me time to do the things i needed to do i'm jealous so that's what i'm gonna have to um, do all that after that's what well, are you up to this week it's uh it's good to see you um you know i just um <laughs> hopefully having a baby that's what we're hoping for uh ariel is <laughs> upstairs crossed. just bouncing up and down on a stability ball because apparently that's supposed to help but uh Uh, she's going to do anything that they tell her to do at this point. (laughs) It helps get the baby out. So, um, we took a walk. I think we're going to go work out. Hopefully that uh, gets things moving a little bit, but so I'm just kind of on call, but I've done a lot of things around my house. We painted the basement. I got some furniture delivered. I have a lot of, I have a lot of long tasks list today that I need to complete after this. So it's good that we're starting early. Um, and you know, hopefully at some point I'll have to go to the hospital to get the baby out. So let's, uh, let's keep our fingers crossed for that one.
1: Well, good good luck with that. I'll be, uh, I'll be on call <laughs> as well. How about yourself? Uh, I'm going to go do all the things that you did this morning after this. I had to walk the dog. Uh, I've got a football meeting today before we start summer tomorrow, uh, Monday morning or Monday afternoon. So we're going to work on our kind of our, our organization and how that's going to work. They're ripping up the turf at the high school right now. So we have to work out on a grass field without any lines or anything. So they're replacing interesting. it. Yeah. They're replacing it. And apparently it's going to take less than four weeks, but I don't believe that. So seems, <laughs> I'm preparing as if hopeful. we will. Yeah. I'm preparing as if we won't have uh, access to the turf for the season. Uh, for yeah, the, probably a good idea. Uh, preseason and then i got my good friend charlie coming over charlie reed for, for his birthday we're gonna grill some steaks and jenny is away just, for
0: work just being men Bumps. in the backyard grilling some steaks drinking beer <laughs> yeah swimming in Unbelievable. the You yeah yeah so Life is good yeah tough day so well we have um another uh ama episode that we asked for questions i had some questions sent in and we picked two that seemed to be uh, good topics that we figured we could cover for an hour. And as I'm saying that again, if you're listening to this and you want to send questions in DM them to us, email them to us, uh, cause we're happy to go through them. It gives us, um, listener guided content, which is really what we want to talk about the things that you want to hear about. And typically you guys send in some pretty good questions. So, um, this first one is from Peter Smeets. Uh, shout out to Peter, uh, over in Switzerland, uh, former MBSC intern actually interned with me way back in the day. In 2008, um, and his question, I'll read it here. Says uh, he has a couple clients with Parkinson's um, and clients over the age of 80. And as you know, lots of doctors might not be on board with the active, like proactive exercise approach to dealing with you know age-related cognitive decline or Parkinson's-related cognitive and movement-related decline. Um, and he wants to know if there were any references or resource sources we could share with him uh, to help him better talk to the doctor and get them on board and just better guide his programming. And so um, kind of how can we dive into the impact that exercise can have on some of these neurodegenerative diseases, whether it be things like Parkinson's or um, Alzheimer's or MS or just general cognitive decline as you age, what is some of the research that's out there and how can we support him so he can better support his clients?
1: Yeah, from a resource standpoint, I immediately go to neuroplasticity and the book the way the brain changes itself by norman Deutsch. um i can't even remember when i first read that uh the idea of neuroplasticity being that uh, basically that the brain can still function even if something should go wrong or something stops working because there's so much overlap in the brain. Um, And there's just so many examples of that. And then um, I'm going to read this here. It's it's directly from the way the brain changes. So when they mapped the subject's brain, scientists discovered that just doing mental practice resulted in the same changes in their motor systems as the one who actually as the ones who actually practice so that's one thing I'd like to talk about is visualization um, the other thing is the through specific areas are responsible of for specific roles in the brain many often overlap and help one another so that's where, Movement as medicine comes into play. Uh, I'm not naive enough to think, though, that movement is is the only thing that helps with this overlap. Um, so I'd like to, to discuss a little bit further there as well. Um, so that those are the two things that come to mind for me. Uh, well, one, the resource, the way the brain changes itself, and uh, what are the, the things we can do um, to help with the neuroplasticity as we age. And I know you did a whole presentation on this, I believe called movement as medicine um, and <laughs> crazy enough. And then I actually, I've been diving a lot into visualization myself because I'm going to use it with
0: the football team this season. So nice. Well, the big thing with any of these <laughs> neurodegenerative diseases or aging related diseases is um what we need to do is the reason exercise is valuable is be like you said the neurotrophic factors. When you exercise, you get more blood flow, more oxygenation in the cells. You get releases of things like BDNF, brain derived neurotropic growth factor that helps stimulate growth cells and cells in the brain. And specifically in Parkinson's, is it's a disease of dopamine, right? it's a lack of dopamine that keeps them from being able to move or has them move in that shuffling gait that you often see and one of the values mm-hmm. of exercise is it stimulates dopamine synth- uh, synthesis in the brain um and so that's why we see changes in symptoms uh following exercise and so uh what i was going to send uh over to peter uh was a link to an article uh that i found which is a research review i think it was 2010 um, of all of the studies surrounding exercise as it relates to Parkinson's progression and Parkinson's symptoms. Um, and what they found um, was, I mean, we don't have a cure for Parkinson's, but it. they looked at it from a lens of improving quality of life, improving physical functioning day-to-day, being able to do regular everyday tasks, improvements in their gait, both in their stride length, in their amount of their power and their push off, um, and lack of shuffling, um, because that's like one of the big hallmarks of the disease, obviously, Um, impact on their strength, as well as their balance and risk of falls. Um, Because ultimately what you're looking to do is increase their quality of life or slow down progression of symptoms as at least where we are right now, as far as managing disease. And it is all pretty positive. Um, I will say all the studies were pretty short in duration Um, so it would probably be beneficial to have, um, studies that are done over longer periods of time. I think like the longest one was like a 12 week intervention. Um, so you might be able to see some results there, but I think ultimately. Training them over the course of years is you're probably going to see a larger impact or be able to see potential for a larger impact. If you do it for a longer period of time, um, the sample sizes were also fairly low. Um, and in some of the cases, the intensity was really low. It was like seated, uh, chair stretching, which you wouldn't expect there to be much of an impact there. But however, in the ones that were strict training related or in aerobic exercise related, uh, things where people were up on their feet, they all did have positive impacts on their daily physical functioning, their stride length and stride power, um, their strength and their balance. So we know. Uh, pretty clearly that exercise has a positive effect due to exactly what you said, the neuroplasticity. When people exercise, there's more oxygenation, more blood flow. It promotes new nerve growth and survival, almost more importantly. Like we talked about the idea of as we get older, we're training for power. We might not actually be getting that much more powerful or stronger, but we're not getting worse. Um, and when you're looking at people later in life who might have a neurodegenerative disease, that means quality of life for them for a longer period of time. And so... The research is pretty clear there, and so I'll link to that um, systematic review in the show notes. It's really pretty interesting, um, but if you're not into reading studies, uh, the brain that changes of itself, as Brendan mentioned, really interesting <laughs> book uh, that goes into. I'm, sorry.
1: I'm laughing. Because I knew you would go into the science of everything yeah. and that I was not going to go into the science of everything, like the the BDNF. And, yeah. But just the way you said, if you're not into science, a.k.a. Brenton, then you can read this book.
0: It's very good. It's, he's a great writer, um, and he talks tells a bunch of little different stories to demonstrate all the different points that he talks about, right, about the value of uh, mm-hmm. uh, neuroplasticity and how people, when you think that – they might be stuck with a certain condition or, uh, whatnot, how they can adapt the same with, I know the other book that you wanted to discuss as well.
1: Yeah. The tale of dueling neurosurgeons by Sam Kahn. I believe it was Mm -hmm. Michael Mullen who recommended this book to us. Uh, fascinating book. book. Oh, maybe it was, maybe it was Michael then. Um, yeah, the, the, Early studies of the human brain used a simple method, wait for misfortune to strike, strokes, seizures, infectious diseases, horrendous accidents, and see how the victims coped. So that's originally how they figured out most of our medical stuff was basically someone got it, they wrote down the symptoms and what happened, (laughs) and then they thought, oh, well, that must be, well, you know. The cause, but that must be the part of the brain that's affected. So they always bring up the Atticus Finch who got the the steel rod through his brain and it took out his frontal lobe. He's still alive. Phineas Gage, seemingly Atticus, perfectly. fine. Phineas Gage. What's Atticus? What's a, what's Atticus Finch then? <laughs> oh my god, that's from a book. Phineas Sorry. Gage. Phineas Phineas Gage. Whatever fancy names atticus finch now this is going to be funny it's going to be like to kill a mockingbird or something no
0: atticus finch is from yeah to kill a mockingbird you are correct
1: okay see <laughs> all right well i'm not that dumb then. Um, so they use that example um hold on Observers were amazed by the transformations that took place when different parts of the brain were destroyed, altering victims' personalities. Parents suddenly couldn't recognize their own children. Pillars of the community became pathological liars. Some people couldn't speak, but they could still sing. Um, And so they go through all these fascinating stories, uh, phantom limbs, uh, blind people who could see through their tongues. Uh, The book starts with the the King of France in a jousting match, he gets jousted in the head and it messes up. He essentially gets a concussion, but they didn't know what that was back then. And it changes his entire personality. So um, that is also a fascinating book that again, goes down the road of neuroplasticity, which is a fancy way of saying like, how do we connect dots? And there's mm-hmm. certain things we can do to connect more dots in our brains, especially if something should go wrong. So for example, the blind people who figure out how to use their tongue in their ears, right? Their, their other sensory organs adapt, and they can use those to see, or the, essentially they make echolocation like a bat, and they can hear the the distances away that they are from a wall or from whatever it is by using their tongue to make sounds, which is, fascinating that the brain could learn how to do that but you and i would never (laughs) probably never be able to uh because the brain essentially rewires itself to continue living and like you said i think the word is survival Mm -hmm. um that's essentially what the brain is always thinking like how can i survive and exercise to tie this all back in exercises exercise is a nice low level graded uh controlled Exposure to survival. So, uh, when we're in the gym and we're challenging um, people with these disabilities or diseases, um, we we effectively are changing their brain by making more connections, uh, and hopeful that carries over to a um, a longer maybe maybe not a longer life. But a uh, what do they call it? Disease, disability years.
0: Yeah, you're shortening um, uh, your time spent in disability. You're sh- um, and so there's it's always the idea of life, lifespan versus age uh, versus uh, health span, right. right? So we're trying to increase their overall health span. And with exercise, right. what you essentially do is you create an environment for the brain to be optimized, right? Put aside the fact that there's a neurodegenerative disease breaking these individuals down over time. Now, there's obviously uh, therapeutics and drugs that they're working on to help slow or reverse the breakdown that happens with the disease, right? But aside from that, these individuals probably already don't have an ideal uh, biochemical or physiological environment for their brain to be optimized, even if they didn't have the disease, as probably you or I or anybody else, but by exercising, (laughs) you mean,
1: uh, you mean modernity, (laughs) you mean sitting at my computer in a small office all day, isn't good for my brain. Exactly.
0: And so by exercising, you promote blood flow and oxygen, which helps the proliferation of growth of nerve cells. BDNF released helps the proliferation of nerve nerve cells. Dopamine helps your motor system work. Smoothly, like we need dopamine to do any movements, right? That's what our chemical is. that allows us to, to move. And then also the exercise helps from Parkinson's specifically. That's like a movement related disorder helps the central processing in our nervous system to create force and move. And all that stuff tends to degrade with the disease, but it also just degrades with aging. And so. I mean, it makes a lot of sense that exercise would help these individuals. I just think from a medical standpoint, kind of what Peter was asking was like, how do I get a doctor to Uh buy in and think that this is valuable? Right. Because I think for them, they think like, oh, these people can't exercise, right? Like they can barely move. They shuffle their way into my office. Um, and so the challenge is often application, right? Like, have you ever worked with someone with Parkinson's? It could be very challenging to find ways to get them moving, right, depending on how advanced they are along the spectrum um, in doing things that look like exercise. It's obviously not going to look like the same way that you train your normal, healthy, everyday individual, right? You're going to have to make a lot of modifications. But it could be loaded walking. It could be just doing everything in one place, standing up, sitting down, using a TRX, Uh, putting on a weight vest if they have trouble holding the weights, things like that, but it it doesn't have to be your traditional strength training program or how you train everybody, but there's definitely a room for application um, in doing it, because what we just want is the physiological response where the heart rate goes up, the muscles are starting to work and contract, um, and we're creating the physiological environment on the inside that helps them adapt a little bit better and stave off the disease, maybe a little bit longer. Right
1: so i'm i'm very comfortable with taking on the doctor question mm-hmm. i've been consulting at a healthcare company for the last four years uh where it's an inter interdisciplinary system where we work with the physicians the nurses uh we have the physical medicine team which is our pt Cairo, acu massage and fitness. And then we have our behavioral health, which is, um, psychology, um, wing of everything. And I'll just say this about doctors. So if we put on our doctor hat and we, we look at, from their perspective is doctors are going to be very, very risk adverse. Mm -hmm. Um, they don't want to tell anybody anything that could then fall back upon them. Uh, exactly. also think of it from a doctor's think of it from a doctor's perspective uh, you've got this person who has a shuffling gait who is very susceptible to falling and being injured and then think about what a doctor sees as fitness okay so you've got your crossfits you've got your health clubs you've got That's what the doctor is envisioning when they prescribe fitness to somebody with Parkinson's or somebody with uh, poor movement patterns or someone who's obese or someone like they're going to say, yeah, probably shouldn't do (laughs) CrossFit, probably shouldn't go to the health club and run on a treadmill. Like they're not envisioning Peter. They're not envisioning you or I, Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas because essentially we're doing more physical therapy, right? more movement than we are doing actual fitness training, yeah. right? Fitness is all relative. Uh, I get that, but doctors don't get that fitness yeah. is all relative. Like they've got to protect themselves. They've got to protect you. Right. So they're very risk adverse there. They're going to be very conservative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their idea of fitness is not like what we know it to be. Right. So, we, we probably get lumped into the functional trainer bucket, which is fine with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the doctor's not thinking of a functional trainer. So if somehow you can make that connection with the doctor, and I mean, I know we're willing to talk to the doctor. It's yeah. the doctor that has to be willing to talk to you because the doctor's the one who generally has... Less time, uh, there's less ways to get in contact with them. There's usually only one, which is through some sort of administrator. So, really, you have to get the patient or the client to take that baton because they're your number one intel or resource to get to the doctor. Right. That's true. So, the individual has to take their own health into their own hands at this point and either force the doctor to speak with you, the the fitness professional and make that connection somehow, or they need to find a new doctor or you've got to just understand that the doctor's, the doctor's going to be very risk adverse for multiple reasons and that the doctor might not know who you are and what you do and why you do it. Uh, And they're just going to lump you in with every other fitness trainer. And this is the Mm -hmm. problem with fitness is uh, (laughs) we get lumped in, right, with the bad trainers. The good trainers get lumped in with the bad trainers. And what do you mostly see on the Internet is the dumb shit that people do. So you then get associated with that. And because we don't have licensure in fitness, which is a great thing, and it's a horrible thing. Yeah. Right. So. Double edged sword. no, No. Double-edged sword, no barriers for entry, awesome. Like anybody who has a passion for fitness and wants to be great at it can get into it. Horrible thing is that anybody with a passion who doesn't know anything <laughs> can also get into fitness and prescribe exercises and workouts, and that's a scary thing So because there's no licensure, right? Like we made up our own certification because we can. There's no nobody who told us that we can't. Um, so like you've, you've got to try to do your best to reach out to the doctor, just understand where they're coming from. So be a little bit empathetic there. Um, and then use, I mean, your client has to be the driver because you reaching out to the doctor 99 out of a hundred times, is it going to elicit a response from the doctor? It's got to come from the patient. Oh, yeah. When the patient demands it from the doctor, then most likely it will happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's, That's my take on the doctor thing is like, essentially, you got to sell yourself almost as a physical therapist. Um, You're not necessarily, you know, you're not trying to break records with this person. You're not going to run any 5Ks. You're not going to enter any powerlifting meets. Uh, But that's what the doctor is envisioning when they hear fitness and exercise. They've got this preconceived idea of what the media thinks those things are. It's like those memes that you see all the time, like, What my parents think I
0: do,
1: what my parents (laughs) think I do, what the doctor thinks I do, what my friends think I do and what I actually do. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's true. That's exactly the doctor has an idea of what you're going to do to this person that you're going to put a barbell in their hands and have them snatch it over their head. And they have Parkinson's. Yeah. that that's right that's so you've got to be aware of that uh and and that hasn't changed because the doctors are mostly worried about sick care honestly they're not they don't spend their time on preventative care because they have so many people who are sick um and that's part of why we're in the system and why the system is broken but it's the system right now so we've got to play nice
0: yeah
1: so that's my take on the doctor on the doctor thing
0: yeah so I think in summary, the biggest thing is like we know exercise is going to be good. I think the challenge for anybody out there who's going to be working with people who might have any neurodegenerative disease is like we said, application. Find, like you said, it it probably isn't going to look like your traditional training at the beginning. It's going to might look like, hey, come in, we're going to walk with a weight vest and then we're going to do some TRX squats and use the cable machine and try to walk through the ladder. And just try to keep you moving so your heart rate gets up, right? Like, just create circuits with tasks, functionally-related yeah. tasks for them. Um, and that are see in a controlled environment
1: do. that, right, mm-hmm. it's, in a, it's in a controlled environment that has support all around, right? And then mm-hmm. like, you're hopeful that those connections get made in the gym in a safe place that they can then carry that over into real life that doesn't have as many... Uh, constraints or as much re- as much um, a- an environment that is uh, always changing right yes that's, that's the thing is we, we want to start slow and prepare them for an environment that's always going to be changing in real life but in the gym I have a lot more control
0: yes and what you can do is like if you can find ways to do those tasks and still get a heart rate <laughs> impact with people, um then that's pretty pretty amazing right like they're they're getting a little bit stronger right. they're getting their heart rate up which is going to be hard for people who don't move very well um and so whatever things you can uh bring up i actually want to look at this um where's this rhonda patrick research my favorite person uh that oh, she just posted to... you
1: retweet her daily because <laughs> she's so
0: much smarter than me you uh <laughs> but she, sorry, she she posted this study that I actually haven't even read yet, but I just bookmarked it. But I'll just read her caption because it was really good because it actually kind of speaks towards the neuroplasticity and brain health and exercise piece. So this exercise mm-hmm. intensity may determine which brain regions are affected during a workout. So different intensities affect different parts of the brain. Um, so low-intensity mm-hmm. exercise activated brain regions involved in cognition and attention, while high-intensity uh, exercise activated brain regions uh, involved in mood and emotion and damper dampen motor function brain networks. So both in both intensities, improve mood. And so thinking about the impact that your brain can have on the entire system is like, I'll keep reading, it says low-intensity aerobic exercise was at about 50% of a person's max heart rate, while high-intensity exercise was at about 75% or higher. Um, and the mechanisms for differential brain effects include neurochemicals like lactate and cortisol and neurotrophins and neurotransmitters, all re- affect how these regions all work. Um, and so thinking about, you know, okay, if I'm gonna have them, you're, you're probably only gonna be able to do low intensity stuff with people early on, um, but if you uh-huh. can keep them moving, it, when we know it changes people's memory and attention um, and motor processing. so just getting them moving. It doesn't really matter. I don't think what it is that you do as long as you find things they can do comfortably without pain. And like you said, in a controlled environment, and hopefully it has a snowballing effect for people who you also have to realize that when they're, if they have a disease and they have symptoms, there's also just probably some degradation of their abilities because they've stopped doing things. Right? So it's like, how much of it is it, is it from the actual disease and how much is, of it is from disuse? because they were diagnosed with Parkinson's or whatever it might be. And so if you uh-huh. get the moving, you might find that some of those symptoms will actually get a lot better just because they start doing things again. Um, not to say that it will uh, negate the disease entirely. It certainly wouldn't, but it would definitely make them uh, more active um, and more probably resilient to stress because they're staying right. active in the first place.
1: Well, if you so. think of it as... Um... Right, they have a hundred percent loss of whatever. Right, if fifty percent of that is from the disease itself, that's not going to change. Mm-hmm. And then there's fifty percent of that's due to disuse. That we can certainly change um, from a movement perspective, and that fifty percent can actually change now with the medications that they have and the uh, the electro stim that they have like they can insert things into your brain now into your uh into your spinal cord that can actually help with movement and then there's uh medicines that you can actually take now for these things that stop the tremors that stop mm-hmm. the uh so like there's there's the 50 that's that that's the doctor's wheelhouse yes. Right. I, I have nothing to do with that but the 50 percent of the disuse we can definitely work on so imagine so that say they're a hundred percent disabled from whatever it is, but fifty percent of that is medical, and fifty percent of that is due to disuse. And we can make a thirty percent improvement in usage, and then they can make a thirty percent usage um, improvement in medicine. That's a sixty percent improvement mm-hmm. uh, with that individual just from moving, and then. T- taking the correct medications or because of modern medicine. I, I mean, I'm not naive enough, as you said, to think that like, if we just start putting on weight vests and walking around and throwing and catching tennis balls and stuff that magically uh, you're going to be cured. Uh, yeah. just, modern, modern medicine is there for a reason and it's incredible. So I wrote in coaching rules that there's, there's five things for me. So there's, there's movement as medicine. There's food as thy medicine. There's um, nature as thy medicine. There's um, water as thy medicine, and then there's medicine as my medicine. Medicine as thy medicine. So
0: regular old Hippocrates over here. <sighs>
1: I'm, I'm the modern Hippocrates. <laughs> uh, Hypocrisy didn't have access to all the information that we have. Uh, but at the end of the day, like there's a re- medicine is a wonderful thing. Like uh, penicillin has saved millions of lives. Mm-hmm. Like a, a, if I get, I, I'm going to take the penicillin. If I need an antibiotic, I'm not going to be like, oh, I'm just going to, you know, walk it off. Um, that's not how it works. So I mean, there's a lot of people – I'm only here doing this podcast because of modern medicine. This and is that's true. that's a whole story in itself, <laughs> right? But the, like I wasn't going to exercise my way out of aplastic anemia. It's just that I needed modern medicine to get over the hump. We should there. actually so do a whole podcast
0: on that, to be honest. I'm going to interview you.
1: I know. Okay, uh, that'll be interesting. I, I gotta find something to interview you about. You're boring, though.
0: No, I didn't. I haven't had any near-death experiences to speak of.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can go back to your BMX yeah, snowboarding childhood. Exactly. Exactly. Um, this brings another uh, book since I'm not since I'm not the researcher here, and I hate studies. Uh, Spark. Oh yeah, uh, the book Spark by John Rady. Uh, Goes into how exercise and they specifically use aerobic exercise primes the brain for learning. And I would love if they did a study that did a combination of uh, strength training with different movement patterns and aerobic exercise. That would be cool to see if there's a difference between Mm -hmm. a control group, an aerobic group, and a strength training group in uh, learning capacity. But that's another great book on how. And that one really gets into BDNF and how exercise affects the brain and the ability to learn. And again, the ability to connect dots. Mm -hmm. Um, So spark is another great resource. If anyone is interested in how exercise affects learning in the brain. Very good. Um, Two things I want to mention are visualization and meditation. Mm -hmm. Those, those two things have been, um, studied and every book that i read on neuroplasticity and trying to change the brain dive into imagery visualization and meditation as their non-movement ways to elicit uh, a similar response that you get from exercise um so therefore like Okay, so exercise is great, so maybe that gets our 30%, but maybe the last 20% of use is them just visualizing it uh, the, or, or uh, meditating or whatever you want to call it. I don't care what that is, but actively having to use your brain, um, even in a steady state or in a lying state where you're not moving at all, can make those connections in the gray matter
0: neuron uh, release
1: mirror neurons and it elicits a hormonal response um so say this person's so tired from the exercise and they can only get in to see you two to three days a week that means the other four days Four or five days a week, they could be just doing imagery drills or visualization drills or meditating, uh, whatever that looks like to you. So I just wanted to throw that out there that Mm -hmm. everything that I've read on neuroplasticity, again, it's not just about um, movement. It's not just about medicine and, and what those two things can do. You can also take the cognitive and mental drills or mental skills and use those to improve Outcomes for um, people with
0: Parkinson's or other diseases. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, m- so the very least, fascinating.
1: Yeah, at the very least, if you can't get in the gym, have some just visualization think about getting in of meditation. <laughs>
0: think about it. That's what you're gonna do today, Brendan. You're gonna sit by the pool. Yeah, that's and you're gonna drink beers, so but you're gonna think of like think about exercising.
1: <laughs> See. This is why the thy, there has to be more thy medicines because yes. you can't just focus on one and expect it to fix all the others. Like it's a combination of everything. But it would be phenomenal if I could sit at the pool and think about working out while drinking a beer and have myself lose a couple extra pounds. <laughs> that, that I know is not to be true.
0: Oh, my God. So. Well, our, our, we had, that was really good. And we have a second question from Matt. Um, Matt sent in a question, he said, what are your key considerations when training endurance athletes? I'm specifically interested in Mm -hmm. learning about how you approach both strength and conditioning for clients who are preparing for long distance running events like a marathon. And I think we've talked about this briefly before, and I know you and I have both trained a lot of, uh, endurance athletes, both runners, cyclists, swimmers, triathletes, things of that nature. Um, and it's a question we get a lot. Um, about how to build a plan for someone who might whose sport might inherently be an exercise um, like running and something that they do at very high volumes. So how do you uh, create a program that can accommodate all the rest of the training that they need to do and still provide a positive benefit, um, especially when those individuals, endurance athletes specifically, might be somewhat resistant or skeptical of the value of something like strength training,
1: so I'm just I'm drawing out little buckets here. Oh, no, you love on, buckets! <laughs> a sh- I'm a, uh, I know Mike. Ever since I've heard Mike talk about it, the idea of buckets, right? Because there's no studies on buckets, so I, I like the uh, I like the visualization yes. of it. So as you mentioned, we I've ha- also yeah had the. Uh, opportunity to train professional triathletes and, uh, just regular old triathletes who look up to their professionals, mm-hmm. uh, definitely not professional triathletes though. So, uh, I worked with a, a triathlete coach, his name's Matt Dixon, and he looked at triathlon and from four different buckets. So the four different buckets are run. There's a run, bike, swim bucket, right? So run, bike, swim, that's his bucket. That's not my bucket. I don't coach run, bike, swim. I coach everything that goes into being able to run, bike, and swim to move better and be more resilient. That's what I'm doing as a strength coach. Uh, There's the recovery bucket. So this is your nutrition and sleep. There's the strength bucket. So that's my wheelhouse, our wheelhouse. And then there's the mental bucket, right? So that's the mental conditioning, uh, all that. So I'm not I mean, maybe we dabble in the mental bucket, but they have legitimate like mental health coaches mm-hmm. that they work with or sports sports psychologists, right? Um, which is funny to me. I'm just going to get on my soapbox for a second is that when it's a sports psychologist, it's totally cool. But when it's a psychologist where I'm talking about my feelings and the shit that's going on in my life, it's it's considered taboo, right? <laughs> but if it's a sports but if it's a sports psychologist, it's totally okay. So, um, just my little. Well, that's a there. bigger Basically overall
0: conversation because again, we we condone behavior in sports that we wouldn't condone anywhere else.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> right. Like Big shows of emotion. Uh, like if after I did anything at work and I dance like Steph Curry, uh, <laughs> after I did anything yeah. successful, people would be like, "Can you stop doing that?" Uh <laughs> Yeah. Or
1: but, or if I broke into tears because yes, I was so happy, yeah, that exactly. would be not cool. But uh, in sports, yeah, it's totally allowed. Uh, yeah, that's a big problem. Um, or yeah, if, you're, if anyone's watched the NFL in the, the last 10 years, um, <laughs> they,
0: yeah.
1: there's things that they get away with that aren't cool um, and need to be addressed. Okay, I'm getting off my soapbox now. Okay, so the the three buckets are run, bike, swim, recovery, strength, and and mental training. So the strength bucket is ours. Now, for me, the strength bucket breaks into four different things. So we have mobility, right? We have strength, we have power, and we have conditioning. Okay, so the conditioning bucket is so full and overflowing... My goal is to actually rein it in and try to keep the bucket from overspilling because there's so much run, bike, and swim going on with triathlon that the conditioning, the aerobic bucket is just – it's taken care of. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to spend all of my time on the mobility, strength, and power buckets Mm -hmm. for – anybody who's an endurance athlete. So for example, even if it's somebody who's uh, for what we'll use, trying to run a mar- uh, a marathon their they're running days and their running mileage is already set. Uh, so at the beginning you're running, you know, seven miles on Monday, eight miles on Wednesday, nine miles on Friday. And then you just keep progressing as you get closer to the event. So <clears throat> my job isn't, I mean, I could help with the navigation of the, the sets and reps and numbers and time and distance. Uh, But that's again, not necessarily my wheelhouse. So I'm going to assess the athlete and say like, okay, your mobility is good or bad, or where can we like, do you need more ankle mobility? Do you need more hip mobility? Do you need more shoulder? Do you need more X, Y, Z? Then we're going to look at, We're going to assess their strength. Like, are you strong enough to absorb the forces of running? So in a marathon, I have no idea how many steps you'll take. I'm guessing it's a lot, but you have to absorb those thousands and thousands of steps over a very long period of time. So strength is essentially your ability to eccentrically load or absorb force. Then it's going to be power. So the more powerful you are the more force you can absorb over a long period of time, which means you can be more efficient. Mm-hmm. So instead of breaking down at mile five, you break down at mile 13. Now that's a huge significant difference, even though the the last 10 miles are still going to suck. Uh, <laughs> there, there's no doubt like at some point, the body's going to start to break down. Um, if you're an average, if you're an average person, uh, you just want to break down
0: better than other people. <laughs> you want
1: to break down better and later. Yeah, that's the goal. Uh, as a normal average person, I love the Bill Murray quote that he wishes in the Olympics. <laughs> That there was always just an average person that was racing against the for reference points because everyone's like ah man like I could have totally beat her in the pool or beat him it's like no you wouldn't you wouldn't even come close to beating the last place person yes you'd still be in the you'd still be in the the shallow end yeah. trying to catch your breath exactly uh, so. Yeah, my, my big buckets are mobility, strength, power, and then based off of the individual, which do we need more of? And I'm always thinking of it from the standpoint of what's going to allow you to run, bike, and swim more, and what's going to help you be more efficient and last longer, or like you said, break down better than everybody else. So everybody's going to break down at some point, but can you can you push that as far as you can? It's exactly what we spoke about with the longevity uh, dis- disability years mm-hmm. versus health years. Right. Mm-hmm. So I want a very steep decline <sighs> at the end. I want to go real quick. Yeah. I don't want to suffer for 20, 30, 40 years with a disability. I want to go fast and hard yep. at the very end. Um, and so it's the same thing with, with a long endurance events. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that's how I think of training from a strength Standpoint. If you want to get more into the endurance stuff, you're probably more well versed in that than I am, uh, especially with the conditioning and mileage and stuff like that. But I'm just going to have them record their mileage, their distances, and their the Strava app is really really good for this because yep. it will take your GPS and then calculate your mileage each week and how much you ran, and then if we can get foot contacts. Uh, foot contacts can be an important thing to monitor uh, because if you do you know th- 20,000 foot contacts one week and the next week you do 50 uh, like well maybe we want to go 20 the next week or maybe that's what led to your stress fracture in your foot exactly your, the stress i've i mean i've had triathletes work out so much they get stress fractures in their femurs mm-hmm. right that's Right. That I, I think you've had that as well. Oh, yeah. Like that's uh yes. Um, I'm thinking uh, I know exactly who she is. She's the principal at a school. <laughs> uh, she ran so much. She got a stress fracture and she's and then I've I had a professional triathlete do the same thing. She ran so much. She got a stress fracture in her femur, um, which we all know the femur is the, sh- the hardest bone in your body to break. It's literally made of concrete. Um, And somehow they broke it from running too much. So uh, that's what I'm thinking of when I'm training somebody for endurance. Um, Yeah.
0: And the big thing, like you touched on it, I think, the well, I'll start the big picture and kind of zoom in a little bit in that. Like if it's a professional or kind of amateur professional who has a coach, let them manage the endurance programming. They're probably better at it than you are um or at least develop a relationship with them so you can have conversations so those people who i've had that have had coaches i've been like hey this is what we're doing um i'd like to see what you're doing hopefully they have a sensible approach to programming like you said small jumps Uh, realistically when you look at the data with people who run over 40 miles a week Um, have significantly higher amount of injuries than people who run under 40 miles a week. Now, that doesn't mean that some people can't take really high volumes. Everybody is different. And I've seen runners um, who run almost the same times. They're all very fast. They're on like sub three-hour marathoners, some who respond really well to high volume and some who don't. So just like it's just like strength training in that, like some people respond to volume and some people don't. Um, So you have to figure out the individual first off and figure out the coach, whoever that person is. And so you develop communication. Um, If you're with someone who doesn't, then it might be sensible to help guide them to build a plan because the biggest reason why people get hurt running is because they just start running. And that's the kind of the two, the problem, the double-edged sword of running is that It's great in that there's a low barrier for entry for people who might not have access to a gym, um, who might not know how to strength train. They just need to put shoes on and go outside. And so that's why it's popular and why it's valuable, but it's also the problem because they just start running with no sense of how much and how fast, how long. And so getting them to like, think, um, you know, the 10% rule works really well early, uh, as you go on it might not work quite as well um you might need to be slower um jason fitzgerald from strength strength running uh who i did a podcast with on this exact topic has some really good kind of articles because he's an endurance athlete but he has taken a uh interest in strength training and and functional training and whatnot and he talks a lot about this and um i use some of his resources to help write an article on strengthcoach.com about uh, functional training, strength training, and power training for runners as well. So check both his website, Strength Running Out, and then strengthcoach.com. I have an we'll article on Put him in the it. show notes. Absolutely. And you want to make sure you're taking slow, consistent jumps. Um, when you start making large jumps, just like you would in the weight room, uh, you start to have problems uh, with volume or workload adaptation. And then it's important to realize in the weight room that it doesn't take a lot. Like it's a very potent stimulus and we're not trying to turn them into football players or hockey players or power lifters. So they probably only need to lift two days a week and they don't need a lot of volume uh, because they're already getting a ton of volume outside of there. And so, like you said, the buckets, right? The things that we can really focus on movement quality, right? If we make sure that their joints move better and absorb and adapt to the stress that they get during running, They're not going to break down as quickly. They're going to be healthier over the long term of their career as well as just in the short term when they're exercising Um, from a power standpoint, both like you said, eccentrically and concentrically. We know there's a ton of research around running economy um, as it relates to plyometrics and strict training and running economy, like you said, meaning that people can run at the same intensity as far as their speed goes with less oxygen usage right and so brendan and i were running same exact speed we're the same person um except i've been doing my plyos and brendan has
1: it's just i knew you were gonna be the one to beat me and i can never i never get to win
0: i never i'm I'm always left in the dust and brendan has (laughs) been doing his plyos so I'm more economical in my running and gait than him. So over time I'm able, I'm able to harness elastic energy better because I have greater tendon stiffness in my Achilles, my foot, uh, my lower leg to absorb the force without the cost of having to do a muscular contraction, right? If you have greater tendon stiffness, doesn't mean the joints immobile. It just means the tendon gets stiffer. Then it's like having those, it's like off the, uh, the Paralympic runners with the, uh, the spring legs, Uh, that they get some spring from those. That's why uh, they wanted to Mm -hmm. uh, control how they designed those things. You get a greater spring through your Achilles and your foot. And then from a strength training standpoint, one, tendon stiffness, same thing, but also, like you said, just their ability to absorb and produce force concentrically as well um, is going to help them, like you said, break down later. And it really only needs to be, in my experience, we lift two days a week and we just move it around based on the volumes of their running And then we might taper it a little bit as we get closer to their competition. But you don't want to try to start to have them train four days a week, five days a week, because you're going to start to take away from the adaptations they need. That bucket, the endurance bucket should stay full. It shouldn't overflow, right? And the strength training bucket should be a little smaller, but we want to make sure that we're filling it. Usually it's empty. And so find ways to get it man it's just like thinking about in-season lifting right endurance athletes are like always in-season athletes they don't take an off very often they don't really take much of an off season um because at least the amateur ones because they just do it because they enjoy it um and you're dealing with usually very type a individuals who want to continue to do more and so again by developing relationship with their coach, or if they don't have a coach developing relationship with them, it'll encourage them to listen to you a little bit more. So maybe you can get them to roll back their volume a little bit and you can get them to dedicate maybe one or two days to strength training, as opposed to having to run every single day or bike every day or swim every day. And so little bits of metrics and power work. Power work is something you can keep in really well. If you think about the adaptations, you'll lose those nervous system gains and those explosive power gains pretty quickly. If you don't do them regularly. Um, And so just keeping a little bit of power work in right up until the competition, that's typically not going to fatigue them. It's the heavier strength training that might fatigue them. Um, It's going to keep the running economy, keep the tendon stiffness, keep them healthy. Then as you get close to the competition, trend down the strength work a little bit more, and you'll probably give me in pretty good shape. So long as they don't have any other uh, things that injuries and whatnot that they're dealing with, which. They probably will be if they've been running that much.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when uh, when I work with the football team, mm-hmm. I like you said, the in-season, I don't damper down the plyometric stuff. Uh, even the day before the game, mm-hmm. um, I want them to be springing in neurologically primed for the next day, but I do decrease the strength training dramatically. So we do a bunch of uh, mobility stuff with a bunch of high neurological. stuff like cane cleans or POGOs or stuff like that. Uh, I will make a mention. So about the buckets is each individual and each sport has a different sized bucket, right? So Mm -hmm. everybody has the four buckets. So there's the mobility, strength, power, and conditioning buckets. Now, if you're an endurance athlete, that conditioning bucket is way bigger than somebody who's uh, golf, uh, who plays golf. Right. So their conditioning bucket is small. They still have a conditioning bucket, but the gas tank doesn't need to be as big Mm -hmm. Um, and then vice versa. Right. So power for the golfer is way bigger than power for the endurance athlete. And you can change the size of the bucket for like if you're in Cirque du Soleil your mobility bucket better be big (laughs) Um, but you don't need that same type of mobility in football so everybody needs the four four buckets it's just what size of each bucket do you need Um, and then the last thing I want you to do if you don't mind is go into the 10% rule because I don't think people remember that 10% (laughs) of 50 Is way different than 10% of 500.
0: Exactly. So, like, let's make it easy. If we're running, right, and I'm doing, you know, five miles um, on the first day, right, I'm doing a five-mile run, and I want to progress next week, a 10% jump would be what? A half a mile, right? I would go to 5.5. That's much more manageable, right? Whereas jumping even twenty percent is a whole nother mile. That's a pretty significant increase. um, Even though you're like, oh, Mm -hmm. it's just a mile. But now, if I go up to, you know, let's say I'm doing, let's say, let's make the math easy. Uh, Well, if I did ten miles, right, relative to that, even that's still a pretty big increase, right? You go add one mile uh, to that, you might be able to manage that right? But it's still fairly Mm -hmm. significant. Um, Whereas if I get up to then running 20 miles as I'm getting closer to a marathon, right? Then I'm running what? 22 miles, right? And so you have to realize that those little gains, as you start to increase your bench press, right? Like Mm -hmm. I'm going to go bench press right after this actually. And say I'm benching 300, right? I'm not going to jump to 310, I'm gonna jump
1: you definitely jump bench three. I did two ninety no, for you three mean, last week. Uh, you mean three thirty. Yes. You mean three thirty. Yeah. Three thirty would be a ten yeah. percent jump. And
0: so right, like if I'm gonna make a ten percent jump, three thirty is massive. Right? I'd go to I'm gonna go to 302 and a half, <laughs> Right. Yeah, so exactly. as you get towards the margins of your intensity and the margins of your capacity and ability in anything, whether it's strength training or it's running related you have to start to narrow the amount of jumps or increases that you make. Right. And so um, it's important to realize that you might need to take smaller jumps to be able to sustain those adaptations because you're getting closer to your ceiling. Everyone's going to have a genetic or physiological ceiling of where they're going to be able to get to. And we're going to be able to push it with training, but it, to push it as you get towards the top, the jumps have to be smaller, or you're gonna get outside of your ability to adapt. And that's typically when you get hurt, right? It's that whole Hans Selle adaptation model, right? You fly too high, then that adaptation is not gonna go the way that you want. You need to just touch. And that's why with beginners, right? You might be able to jump a little bit more because you haven't even figured out where their ceiling is, right? You ever teach a kid to bench press for the first time? And they're, and then you're like, all right, do as many as you can on the last set. And they do like 27 reps with like 70 pounds of part. And they were like, I'm like, okay, we could have you know gone up more, but they told you it was heavy. Uh, and so whereas like you get a more advanced lifter, it's like now nah, we're going up by two and a half pounds. So you have to just realize that your jumps are going to be smaller as you get closer to your physiological ceiling, uh, as you go. Right.
1: So the one of the examples that Mike used to use is if, if you have an athlete who's benching 100 and you have them go to 110 that's a 10% <laughs> increase. That yeah. would be the same as me saying, "Oh, you bench 300, like let's go right to 330," right? That's yeah, a 10% increase. So you could never. So why do we just because they're doing less weight or smaller weights doesn't mean we should be making drastic jumps like that because if um no. when you put it in the context especially yeah. like you said with better lifters better lifters know not to do that and then exactly oh i bench 300 let's go right to 330 like no but if you're you have a kid who benches 100 you're like let's try 110 like no that's that's a huge increase yeah. um let's try 102 and a half um or i mean we had all those one pound weights at mm-hmm. mbsc so you could go to 102 Um, And so linear progression works really, really well for a very long time. Yep. Um, uh, All right. I don't have anything to add to that topic. Let's talk about books. All right. Let's go.
0: Um, I got a good one um, that has nothing to do with the subject matter of the day today. Uh, and it's good because you have one that does, which is I like when we do this. Um, I do. And so yeah. if you want to read something that really doesn't have anything to do with training at all, but it's just a fascinating story about the pharmaceutical inju- uh, industry, um, is called the book Bottle of Lies uh, by Catherine Eben, the inside story of the genetic drug boom. Um, really, mm-hmm. really interesting. It's, it's a pretty big book. Um, yeah, that's right. I read it. Um, it's about four hundred pages. To
1: it.
0: and so she looks into one specific well. um, drug company. Uh, like as you know, at some point, once the patent runs out on name brand drugs, genetic company g- generic companies are able to start making them at a much lower cost, which can be very valuable. Obviously, as we know, the high cost of drugs for some people in this country, especially, can be crazy. So, generic drugs are appealing. The problem with some of these generic drug companies as that. Their manufacturing um, and research is usually lackluster to do things at, at a lower cost. They want to have a larger margin, so they have to cut costs somewhere. Um, and this looks into specifically the company called Ranbaxy, uh, which made a number of genetic drugs uh, based out of India. And But they talk about a whole bunch of different instances uh, where the FDA failed um, or did find issues with people and how widespread kind of the... Uh, the fraud uh, practices were in these drug companies, really, really interesting. It's also going to make you worried to take any pharmaceuticals after you read it. But yes. fascinating story. Yes. I read it very quickly, um, but very, very interesting interesting read, a bottle of lies I would recommend.
1: Makes you think how important it is to know where your resources are coming from. Um. Exactly. It's very good listen as well. It's well done on Audible. That's I listened to it. Uh, all right, so I mentioned the way is it the the brain that changes itself by Norman Deutsch, the tale of dueling neurosurgeons by Sam Kahn. I also mentioned Spark by Sam uh, uh, by John Rady. My most uh, fun version of those three books on connecting dots is why Michael couldn't hit. Uh, and other tales of neurology in sports. So it's written by a physician who just likes sports and was a huge Michael Jordan fan. Um, And he takes all these examples of athletes who had neurological disabilities, but still ended up winning um, Olympic medals. Uh, He goes into the Muhammad Ali developing Parkinson's. A basketball player with Tourette's syndrome, and then he goes into why Michael Jordan sucked at baseball uh, because baseball is more of a neurological skill than it is an athletic endeavor. So you still being an athlete helps, um, but because Michael didn't play baseball while he was growing up, he never developed the the hand-eye coordination to pick up on a small object that quickly. And he goes into a whole neur- neur- neurology of how you hit a baseball and why Michael couldn't do it. That's how he opens the book. It's awesome. Um, and then you, you won't be able to stop reading because of all the interesting athletes that are, I think there's 12 or 15 athletes that he goes through. That's by Harold Qual qualma qualans. i can't pronounce that last name <laughs> but michael couldn't hit it's not a, a very popular book doesn't have a lot of reviews but it is very very good
0: add it, to the list. add it to the list well that's an hour boom very good um yeah so what do we have coming up here brendan anything on your calendar
1: uh all i have coming up is perform better chicago in july that is uh what i've got on the books i don't have any cfscs right now until the fall i have many in the fall but nothing in the summer at the moment
0: same i got nothing what about for you good reason i will not be teaching anything yep. until Pro- uh perform better providence in august and i will not be doing a cfsc until i go to croatia in the first week of september uh, but the, the rest of the team will be out and about. We actually have a lot this summer, uh, level ones and level twos, uh, in Boston, level one, level two, Chicago, level one, level two, Redding, Pennsylvania, level one, level two, level two in New Jersey. Uh, we have level one back in Colorado, level one in Utah. So we have pretty much all over the place. We're going to be having events. Just go to the website, certifiedfsc.com and you can see what we have coming up, uh, more specifically. And so, yeah, it's going to be a good summer.
1: Great summer. It's already kicking off. I got football, so yeah. that's, <laughs> there you that's go, taking buddy. over my life. Well, right. I'm going to go to the gym and exercise. A
0: Goodbye. Uh, I'm going to go Thanks walk the dog.
1: I'm going to go walk the dog. See you later. Bye.